Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan, and today I'm joined by Juliana Hu Pagis, Associate Professor in the Department of Literatures in English at Cornell University. We'll be talking about her book, Space-Time Colonialism, Alaska's Indigenous and Asian Entanglements, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Space-Time Colonialism already comes with accolades. It received the American Studies Association's Laura Romero First Book Prize and the Western History Association's Owens Award for the Best Book on Pacific West. We're looking forward to learning more about the book today. So thank you very much, Juliana, for joining us. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So space-time colonialism reads like a book that encapsulates not only your intellectual trajectory, but your personal investments as well. So I'd love to start with what moved you to write this book, and what about Alaska drew you into questions of space, time, and settler colonialism? Thanks for the question. Um, this is a first book, so it was based on my dissertation. So there's there's that, right? But it does come, as you say, and as you notice, with, with deep personal investments. Um, I am mixed race, Asian American. My mom is Chinese and my dad is white. And my white father is a fourth generation settler in Alaska. So he has both sort of generational ties, but also sort of, you know, a colonial history. And um, my mother and myself were immigrants to Alaska. And so I grew up Asian American in Alaska, and I grew up on the traditional homelands of the Tlingit people. So that already sort of shapes, you know, my own personal uh, investment. Um, and I, I came to graduate school as a non-traditional age student one who had spent a fair bit of time uh, working in communities of color, in particular women of color and queer of color uh, organizing. And so I really knew that I wanted to do some sort of intersectional 
and sort of critical and relational ethnic studies project. I knew that going in. And at a certain point, and hopefully for students who are listening, it was a sprawling project. It was Alaska. It was uh, parts of the Pacific Northwest. It was hip hop. It was literature. Um, and the West Coast, it had all these things in it. And then I realized sort of, you know, what was sort of in some ways both what I was invested in doing and sort of what was my responsibility uh, in in terms of really thinking through questions of race, indigeneity, gender, and sexuality. And I really realized that one, Alaska is understudied as a place and uh, Asian Americans in Alaska are understudied, but in particular, I didn't want to just uh, talk about Asian Americans within a sort of American context, right? Certainly didn't want to do that. And that it was important for me to do that type of work and research within an indigenous context, really thinking about what is what does Asian American belonging mean on indigenous land in connection to indigenous peoples and indigenous experiences and epistemology. So that's that's sort of, you know, where my deep personal investment, uh, where I locate that. Um, And I like to say that I'm also making sense of hometown violences, even if I'm implicated in those structures of violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for, you know, really encapsulating the core of the book so succinctly, but also taking us through the circuitous ways that bring us to books, right? It's not always linear. So I really appreciate that. And I want to jump to the theoretical arc of the book. So, you know, as you do this work that um, you've lined out for us, you guide us through the spatial and temporal arrangements that entangle indigenous and Asian racial formations in settler colonialism. And I'm curious why you were drawn to the spatio-temporal lands and how did the cultural products you worked with bring you to spatial and temporal entanglements? Thank you for that question. Um, it it wasn't uh, pulled out of nowhere. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't. Um, you know, we all try to. I think as scholars, I say this is you know my new concept. This is my innovation. But in some ways, it's about paying attention, right? And being in spaces and paying attention and trying to trying to at least sort of um, facilitate conversations more than create right uh, terminology. And so one of the things that I understand about Indigenous studies, in particular, I think, uh, North American Indigenous studies, um, is that Indigenous peoples, but I think this is global, but in terms of who I read, um, scholars I read, that Indigenous peoples are configured as out of time. Of course, Indigenous peoples are not out of time. So I want to be really clear about that, that, but it's a colonial logic that Native people cannot be modern. This idea that both Indigenous peoples are vanishing Right. There's a colonial project. You can't take someone's land or 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 even deem that land is empty unless you vanish the people right who inhabit who are the original original occupants of that land. So uh, it's a colonial project and logic to make indigenous peoples out of time that native peoples cannot be modern, that they are either disappearing and it's a no win configuration. So native people are either relegated to the past or if they're in the present, they exist somehow inauthentically in the present, 
right? And so really paying attention to that. And then looking to Asian American studies, and I would say those who look at probably racialized immigration, but Asian American studies in particular, it's not a temporal, right, a logic. It's a spatial logic that no matter how long Asian immigrants are here, say someone could be fourth or fifth generation, but the racialization sort of the, 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 that happens for Asian immigrants, Asian Americans um, is spatial. Where are you from? No, really. Where are you really from? I say that, and uh, when I say this to students, they immediately click to, of course, because that is, that is the experience, right? Where are you really from? So it's like the idea of the forever foreigner that comes from Asian American studies. So I'm really interested in this idea that, that indigenous studies gives us idea that the colonial logic is never modern. Indigenous peoples can never be modern. And, and then for out of Asian American studies, the racial configuration is forever foreign. No matter how long you're here, no matter how many generations you are forever foreign. And so I, I want to think about those, those colonial configurations together. Because I think what happens is when different groups of people are colonized and racialized or racialized within a colonial system, they they are within a same with they're connected within a system, but that but that racialization is distinct. And it's really easy for us to think that solidarity can only happen if if it is the same experience or those experiences need to be collapsed. And I'm I'm really interested in the idea of of not doing that, right? Of thinking about incommensurate experiences, even while, right, we could think about a critique of colonial of colonialism, white supremacy, and so that that's where this sort of starts, and then and then it plays out because, of course, one of the things that happens when I look at Alaska is you have after uh, the U.S. purchase of Alaska, right? What I consider an imperial purchase of Alaska in 1867. Um, Asian immigrants are there in much larger numbers than white settlers or even white migrant workers, right? That they are there to work highly extractive economies, mining, logging, salmon canning, right? Extractive economies. And it isn't until World War II that you even get sizable white population in in Alaska, certainly not white settled population. And so to think about what happens when you have for a long period of time and sort of what I would consider the U.S. colonial period in Alaska, right? It's mostly indigenous peoples and Asian migrant laborers. But that's who's that's who's there. And yet, when you go to the history, those two groups are never talked about or rarely talked about in conversation. And part of that's because, in in general, knowledge is mediated through whiteness. So there's that, right? So there's 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 that. But also this idea that if 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 a group cannot be in a place and a group cannot be in, in a time. If one, if one group is out of place and one group is out of time, they can never be in the here and now in any given moment. They can't be in the here. And so even as Alaska Native peoples and Asian migrant workers lived and labored in the same spaces, they're relegated either out of place or out of time. They can't be seen sort of, with, they can't be held in the same frame or in the same moment. And I think that that's an issue. For me, that's, you know, that's an issue. And so I want to sort of think about that. And so how do I, how do I get at that? And this is sort of the, the book and that's sort of the general argument is I'm looking for that discourse. I'm looking for that, what, then what I'm calling, right, space, time, colonialism, or the spatial logics of colonialism and the temporal logics of colonialism together. So I'm looking at 
the discourse. So that means I look at literature, I look at poetry, I look at novels, and then I look at travelogues, photos, but I'm also interested in even reading the government documents. Similar to the fiction, right? Reading them side by side. Not one is truth and one is fiction, but they're both creating a narrative. And so I'm interested in how this narrative gets created around these colonial logics, right? Even the congressional records, um, census documents. But then, and this is, you know, the pause in it and the sort of the turn, I always want to be thinking about how Alaska Native and Asian immigrant authors and artists see something different. That their own, that they are, they are finding and creating alternate modes of meaning and belonging and relation. Right, that there's always a counter narrative. Always that this, that this colonial discourse is never absolute. Right, it wants to paint itself as absolute. It wants to naturalize itself as total, but it never can be. It always fails to do so. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate you pointing out. Um, specific kinds of attention that this book necessitated. And I think this will be a running theme in the rest of our conversation. Um, So something that you paid attention to that I was really intrigued by was tourist narratives and the tourist gaze. And you mentioned that a little bit. So to me, um, it seemed like, in a way, touristic mobilities facilitate the mobility of racial logics like Orientalism. So how do you locate mobility in Asian and indigenous entanglements or perhaps the disentanglements um, in Alaska? Uh, no, that's a, that's a lovely question. Yeah, so one of my um, first chapters looks at what I'm calling settler orientalism. So one of the things too is Alaska really also functions as this hinge, um, as do other spaces, right? Um, Hawaii, right? There's other spaces and and potentially we could even think of uh, Puerto Rico, the Philippines as these, as these spaces of, and but of course things happen differently in terms of national liberation in the, in the Philippines. And of course, uh, Puerto Rico remains a colony, right? So there's, there's different temporalities here, but this, but these places that are neither, at least in certain periods, a long period between or a hinge between colonialism and settler colonialism. And, and here's that naturalization that settler colonialism does because Alaska likes to see itself as always arrived at settler colonialism with sort of ignoring that long period of colonialism, right? 1867 happens before that moment of usually U.S. empire of 1898, is, right, and yet we don't think about it as this as this really definitive moment of U.S. empire in terms of the purchase of Alaska. Um, so, in that, tourists became really pivotal in sort of in sort of naturalizing that hinge and and what I'm calling settler orientalism. So, what I've found is that a large compendium, a large cohort, right, of actors, government officials, missionaries, ethnographers racialize Alaska natives as, to use the parlance of the time, oriental. Oriental, Asiatic, Mongolian are usually the three key terms, right? And so thinking about it also as this understudied site of orientalism. And here I actually do engage both, say, Saeed and also Chickasaw scholar Jody Bird. So this is the other sort of thinking alongside that I try to do. And tourists in particular are traveling to this, the first non-contiguous territory, and telling us who Alaska Native peoples are. And it's this mix of primitivism and Orientalism. So what I'm sort of noting as settler Orientalism, that these are indigenous peoples, but somehow they're not like the indigenous peoples of the rest of 
the contiguous, what, what Manu Karuka would call the continental empire of the U.S. Um, they are like Asians, but they're not quite Asians either. And so th- there's a really interesting configuration that is about both um, a colonial development and a future eye towards settlement. So it is literally the pro- a project of colony and settler colony in, in, in particular. And it is these travelogues, right, that even more than any sort of any sort of governmental um, testimony, th- they speak back to a popular audience. So these tourists go up on ships and um, of the two dozen most popular books of Alaska in the late 19th century, all of them, 100 percent racialized Alaska Native peoples be they Clinket, Haida, Unangan, they, I mean, it's coastal communities, but they racialize Galassa Native peoples as Asian in some ways, either Asian descendant, connected to Asia, whether it's, and, and really sometimes horrible phenotypic descriptions, but so, you know, some, uh, this idea of, of capture and knowing someone, you know, in a, an ethnographic sense. And, and it's, but it's the tourists even more than the ethnographers of the missionaries that naturalize this right to the, to the public. And in terms of what you're saying, in terms of the, the, the mobility, um, this is a, you know, one key example of this is the tourists travel up on steamships. So this is also a moment of industrialization of the late 19th century, going into the early 20th century. They're, from, for the most part, going up on steamships to travel. And sometimes those same ships, there are Asian laborers on board, usually in steerage. So sometimes they don't even come up on deck, right? And they're coming up from San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver, Victoria. They're traveling um, up. And in some cases, missionaries are taking Alaska Native peoples on these ships. For the most part, Alaska Native, there's great mobility, right, of course, for Alaska Native coastal peoples from their own modes of transportation, right, their own watercraft. But in some cases, there are cases where there are missionaries who are taking Alaska Native peoples and moving them throughout, and they sometimes travel on steamships. So you have these steamships where you have tourists, you have Alaska Native peoples, and then you also have um, Asian migrants. The tourists ignore the Asian laborers for the most part. They are not exotic. They are not, they are not the subjects of their, of their tourist gaze, of their fascination. So the one, they're saying Alaska Native peoples are Asian descendant, and yet they're ignoring the actual Asian bodies that may be traveling and mobile in the same ways, right? Because they're not necessarily at that moment um, interested in that. And then on this, at the same time, they're not interested in, in sort of naming native mobility at all. Like they're not very interested in, even as the, you know, the colonial economies are, are, are really enticing in some places and, and sometimes coercing native people to be in motion as well, right? Through these economies that they're fascinated in, in Alaska native people being in place, but out of time. And that out of timeness and in placeness is a particular mode of colony and settler colony that I'm sort of, that is this orientalizing as well as a, as a, a mode of sort of colonial, um, notions of, of primitivism, right? Of sort of a deep sort of racist, racist fascination with Alaska mm. Native peoples. But yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting how you mentioned, you know, these tourists 
ignore certain kinds of uh, Asian bodies, even occupying the same spaces as them for such a long time, right? And, you know, that brings me to something I really appreciated throughout the book. So, you know, speaking of attention, you pay meticulous attention to what's rendered absent. And in fact, you talk about absenting, which I take uh, maybe perhaps overreaching as a reader as a verb rather than something that just exists out there in these narratives um so you know and i have in mind for example the chapter about gold rush tales and the absenting of native narratives within that so what kinds of historical realignments become possible through absenting native narratives or in general through absenting as a verb mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's lovely. Because <laughs> like, I, I also name violences. So this is always, it's always interesting what spell check doesn't like, right? When you do this. So absenting <laughs> is a verb. It also doesn't like violences, plural. So this is another yeah. thing. And, I, and I'm like, but the violence, so again, and this is a perfect, ch- this is the chapter where this happened a lot. So I'll think, I'll think about absenting. I also I want to talk about vi- violences in this chapter because it didn't want to think about violent, the violence that is rendered against particular, I'll be really specific, Asian workers that are driven out of a place through mob violence and and the incredible terror like necropolitical terror of violence against native peoples right that they are they are killable in this moment too right under colonial violence and to me those are different violences and here i'm using plural because they they are different forms of violence both colonial but they are different forms of violence so so in that one gets reiterated and i'll go to the specifics in a second one gets reiterated literally for well over a century. And one, while documented, right, in time, in the 1880s. So one one tale exists in the 1870s and 80s because there's a two-parter. And it, but it, it it's it's it is told, it's reiterated over and over as a founding narrative within Alaska. Founding, right? And the other, and this is is absented. I don't think, and this is where, and, and I've done work on this idea of colonial unknowing, that unknowing isn't ignorance, right? So it's, I, I would argue that it's not, and here would be the verb, it is not forgotten. And, and there is, that's the particularity. It's not that one is told over and over and one is forgotten, right? Which, which is this idea that, oh, if we only told it, right? If I only tell it in the book, it will, it will cease to be forgotten. And so that's, that's the, I think the, the lie in some ways of, of this idea of colonial unknowing, right? You don't solve colonial unknowing by just hailing something. It's not an, it's not an educational omittance that can be solved just by, by knowing, right? Is that it's, People know <laughs> in Alaska, people know that there is great violence against Native peoples, both in the past and in the present, but it is naturalized as, as somehow excusable and or, right? And that is the, to me, that's the absenting, if I were to call it, that absenting is necessary. Now, now I'll stake my claim to it. <laughs> absenting is, is necessary because we need something that is different than forgetting, which is benevolent. And I think that there, there is a really, uh, I think there is a difference. So for people who are listening and are like, this is very abstract, in this chapter, the gold rush, almost always this is what is associated. If we don't think about deadliest catch or salmon, when we think about Alaska as a history, almost always we focus on this idea of the gold rush, right? And um, so I have a chapter where I look at a, what I'm, a folklore figure, China Joe. And I call him China Joe, even though that is in some ways 
a racial name and almost very close to a racial epithet, right? Um, China Joe. But I say, I, I call him that because it's it's unclear whether he is a is a person or is a composite person because so much of his, it's a folk, it's a folk tale. And the folk tale travels. If we want to think about mobility travels, it expands, it changes. And so there is some uncertainty as a, as a historical figure, even though there is sort of a historical figure at the center. So the, the, the folk tale is, um, and the first part of it is very much a Christian, in my opinion, a Christian tale of sort of, of the, whatever it is, the teaching men of fish or the breads, the loaves. Uh, um, I'm not well-versed in, in Christian folktales, but it is, it is Christian in the sense that it's, it's the 1870s. No one has an exact year. And it's a, it's a, a, a winter that is a horribly hard winter in the last, and it's the mining fields, the prospecting fields where prospectors are digging for gold. And there's a baker there named China Joe. And the last uh, shipment of supplies, the boat that's supposed to come up the river, there's an early freeze and that can't come up. So the, the prospectors are there for the winter and they have no supplies to get through the winter and they're starving. This is the first part of the tale. And China Joe saves everyone by baking like, you know, and splitting the bread up. And this is where the loaves and fishes he bakes for all the prospectors and saves them from starving. So that's the first part of the tale. The second part of the tale, which has the first part is, is, is that's as much as there is to it. No one has, there's people haven't really done work. Is there a year? There's, there's not much to it besides really, really mythic. The second part has an actual place. It's my own hometown and an actual year, 1886. And so what happens is that at this point, um, China Joe has left the mining fields in the intervening years and set up an actual brick and mortar, right? But a, a bakery. So he's a baker with a bakery now in a mining town. And there are other miners there. In the last several years, there are actual Chinese miners. And now it's gone from prospecting, right, gold, to mining in a, in a gold mine, which is industrial labor and working in a gold mine, placer mining. And there are Chinese laborers there who work for less than the white miners. And so um, their 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 bunkhouses are dynamited. There's all these threats. And then in a in a day in August, the they are rounded up at gunpoint and at knife point by the white miners, and they are driven out of town. And this is Alaska, so they're they're put on boats. the The story is that there's only standing room only. They're put on boats and they're shipped out of town. That that's how this is. And and then this is the second part. And this is of part two of China Joe's tale is the old time prospectors. Remember that China Joe protected them. And when the miners who weren't around for that, the, you know, the miners who are newer to town come for China Joe, because of course he is Chinese, just like the other, the miners, though he is a baker. They come for him and there's a standoff and the prospectors at gunpoint point their guns at the miners and say, you're not, he's not, he's as white as us. You're not coming for him. This is the tale. You're not coming from him. China Joe stays and, and they prevail. China Joe doesn't even appear in this tale. He doesn't even come out of his, of his, his bakery. And, um, and he is said to be the only Chinese who's allowed to remain in gold mining country in Alaska, the Alaskan towns that have gold mines. And so this is a, and this tale, and especially that second part of the tale, the white protection of what I would call both a racialized and in some ways feminized, right? He doesn't come out. He's protected by the miners. He's a, he's a baker, racialized and feminized other, right? This He is the one, he's exceptional and he gets to stay. And so it, it sort of, it, it also sort of um, 
undergirds the, the goodness of the, of the town. And this is a founding narrative. Um, I don't know because things have changed under COVID. So I don't know now that the tour ships are back up and running. It's, it's a cruise ship stop. It's a, like, it's a part of a cruise ship, you know, the walking tour you can take, but he's, 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 it's, this is repeated over and over from the 1880s forward to the present. You could probably Google it and there will be newspaper articles and they'll publish in the last couple of years, school lecture lessons, right? It's very multicultural. This gets repeated over and over. I'm really interested in the story. I'm interested in that, you know, we don't know much about him. We have no written record about him. We don't know. There's many, you know, his name could be several different things. We're not sure if he's a historical figure or composite. And, and this is that whole, what happens when we pay attention to native, right? Uh, narratives. Three years before this, the driving out of China Joe, there are three young Clinket men who get caught in altercation between two rum runners, and and and, and they have they have illegal establishments, illegal legal, uh, liquor establishments. They get caught in a fight, and one of the uh, bootleggers essentially dies in the fight. They and they are and and. The historical record says they were involved and native history tells us that they were also misidentified, these three young men. And they both different, different um, tactics, either try to fight back alternately or, or run away. And one is shot and two are hung. And it is clear, at least in one of the hangings, it is what I would consider, well, both of them, they're lynchings, all three are in sort of what we call the legal definition, because they're done by minors. There's no court of opinion. They're caught, they're killed. And this history that happens literally in the same sort of time, like period, right, within three years, one contradicts that benevolence and heroism of the white miners in China Joe's story, right? It really, it, it really makes that break apart. But two, why this this is the this is the story that does not get reiterated to the present that we have no means of accounting for colonial violence and and it it exists in the historical record, but even then, the story that comes to us through native oral history is much deeper, right? That the men are named, their clans are named, um, and also um, this is how because the men were from a Sitka clan, which is a, another, they were from another town. They, that clan gets gifted land. So we also have native people trying to find reciprocity and, and balance for the violence that's not done by them, but is, but that is done by, by white settlers. Right. And so to me, that is the absenting, right. And what, and why we need to sort of pay attention to not only, it's not just, we have to uncover stories and I want to, Later, if we talk about settler colonialism, it's cooking. It's not that just uncovering stories, but this idea that there has been something absented, and we have to actually make space for that and hold for that possibility, sort of, I think, consistently. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, thank you very much for really driving our attention to 
know, multiple forms of violences and absenting that they produce. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, in the book as well, you tell us that settler colonialism wails its uh, colonial operations through narrative. And I have a, you know, perhaps methodological question about that. So I'd love to learn more about how you work through different resources to trace something as elusive as settler colonialism and how that process was for you. Thank you for this question. This is something I think about a lot, and I and I'm not gonna. I don't know that I'm gonna be as concrete as potentially um, both sort of strategic and philosophical in my answer. So um, you know, there is uh, different modes of thinking around settler colonialism, right? That it is sort of both. Uh, unique to colonialism, whether it is a subset of colonialism. And I don't necessarily think I have the answers to these things. I'm I'm just really thankful that we're, I think, um, scholars and activists are trying to think through these questions around what is the construction of settler colonialism? How does it function? Um, but I do think this, that settler colonialism, in terms of how it discursively functions, the story that settler colonialism tells about itself is particularly tricky. And I say this even as I feel like we've shifted in terms of both scholarship and in terms of um, activists. People now say, oh, the U.S. is settler colonial. You know, there's like this idea that we understand that it's settler colonial, which I'm, again, uh, I think grateful for. But I I also think that that's, we aren't going sort of deep enough in that. Um, It's a little bit performative sometimes and not enough sort of uh, analytical. And so the thing to me that I always find interesting is settler colonialism is a colonialism that narrates itself as anti-colonial. And to me, that's the fundamental cloaking of settler colonialism, right? That American colonialism narrates itself as an anti-colonial, right, movement against Britain, against European colonialism, as does Canada, as does Australia, New Zealand, right? It, It narrates itself, right? We could even say Israel, South Africa, they narrate themselves as an, it's a colonialism that narrates itself. It's not only narrates, it celebrates itself as anti-colonial. And then I would say even the, if we, if you just think of the settler colonies I've mentioned with perhaps the exception of of South Africa, seeing themselves as more democratic than old school colonizers. So it, the, to me, this is the trickiness of it. And I think about this all the time because one, um, it means that I think that there is something settler colonial about academia, period, because discovery becomes refashioned as liberatory. And so I think, and I, and I don't want to get too philosophical for this. I think that we can uncover things. We can find things in the archive. We can, right. But sometimes I think that our attachment to discovery potentially could be a settler colonial logic that because settler colonialism really does refashion discovery as a liberatory. And so, so one, so that's, that's a huge. So I think about that a lot and I'm like, I'm, how can I do my work in facilitating thinking alongside um, doing deep analysis, but, you know, it's so similar if we're going back to the gold rush narratives, not to say I've uncovered the story of, because I haven't, because Native people have known it's there all the time, right? So one is to not have the, have the, paint the 
academic as the discoverer. Um, but to say, what is at work here? What is happening here? You know, rather than discovering, say, what what is it that I can sort of really sit and think and look at deeply? Because I think that is actually the privilege we have of scholars is we actually have the time and attention to think about things, right? And so to me, it's less about discovering something we don't already know about Alaska. It is, so why is Alaska understudied? It's both, I should say this, as under, understudied in a scholarly way, but it's overstudied in the popular press, to go back to those like tourist narratives forward. Books on Alaska are incredibly prolific, right? But it's books of, you know, again, travel narratives. You know, I spent my time with bears. Like it's, it's a very, it's, there's popular press is inundated, right? So to me, it's about what is it about settler colonialism that both conceals so it's that it's actually studying the concealment itself, which is really hard. How do you study absence, right? And yet that's what I try to do, and it authorizes. So it both it both it's a concealment, but it's not trying to hide something secret, right? So this is the authorizing settler. So settler colonialism, you know, in some ways, if we're thinking about American settler colonialism, it celebrates continually, right? Its colonial project, and so it authorizes. So it continually authorizes. And here, thinking about Alaska, it authorizes land dispossession. And authorizes labor exploitation kind of consistently, right? It, it authorizes both those things. And so I often say, and this is a metaphor, but I, I got called on this once about like how to find the needle in the haystack, you know, how to do this. And, and I realized I'm not interested in the needle in the haystack. I'm interested in the haystack. I want to know who constructed that haystack, why it was constructed, how it continues to function and what it's concealing, right? How does the needle get hidden? So instead of like, you know, I'm going to find, and I'm not trying to say don't look in an archive, but I'm, I'm not trying to find, there it is. And, you know, now I'm, I'm validated as a scholar. I want to say, what, what is getting hidden here? What, I'm really interested in the straw, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, something that stuck with me in your response is um, you know, the critical need to rethink discovery as the task of an academic and, you know, discovery as a narrative, perhaps. And this made me curious about your usage of speculative and creative interludes throughout the book. Um and I'm curious about the role of speculation and creative writing in the book, but also based on your response, I'm curious as to whether you know, that's another response to um, discovery as narrative or that's another way to cope with it or work around it. Right, right. Or that it's an out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, right. I'm going to create my own. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to create my own haystack, nor do I want to create my own needle even, right? So if we're going to use that... Um, so I should say, and uh, so I think about space-time colonialism sort of three ways, the, the colonial logics, right, that the out of place or out of time. I think about the space-time colonialism of Alaska as both sort of colony and settler colony. And then the last is the speculative idea, this idea that, and, 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 I'll, um, and I hear I want to credit um, the poet and artist Christy Nami Erickson, who's in Alaska, because we sat down and I'm like, I'm horrible at titles. She actually helped me with the title and I backtracked and went, oh, this is actually a huge theoretical framing. So I want to, I want to credit her with doing that. We brainstormed a bunch of ideas one day, one afternoon. And so this idea that in some ways settler colonialism is a, is not just a fiction. And here I want to say not a fiction versus a truth. I'm interested, but it is a science fiction. 
And Alaska in particular, because I always say this, Alaska, the last frontier, sounds a lot like in Star Trek space, the final frontier. Like they're literally, they're the same phrase. That there is something about being the last frontier that is always the first to be recuperated in colonial nostalgia. So there's a way that it's a frontier that's also never quite fully closed. Because I think it retells, and that's why I think it actually is huge in the popular press. Alaska's Deadliest Catch and Ice Trucker, like everything from reality TV shows to Sarah Palin's popularity. Like, like Alaska is still this masculinist opening of a frontier or it remains slightly open because it's always the first to be recuperated. So that's, so that's one is I really want to think about Alaska itself as a speculative fiction before I get to even my speculative fictions is Alaska itself. Right. And then I think, um, in terms of, in terms of my own, cause there are, as you say, there's these creative interludes. I'm, I'm inspired by two different authors. And one is Lisa Lowe who writes about the past conditional temporality the what could have been, that there's always a what could have been, both in terms of, of multiple possibilities or things we cannot know within the archive, both, right? She's thinking about it in the double register. And I also think about it with Sadia Hartman's use of critical fabulation. And in saying this, I'm inspired by them. I think that Lisa Lowe and Sadia Hartman are two of our most um, important, but two of, two of the writers, scholarly writers, I most enjoy reading um, because of how they make me think and also because of the way in which they write. So I want to say this too. In saying this, I am um, I am, I am inspired by them. Um, but Sadia Hartman also gives us when thinking about critical fabulation that we also can be doing a violence. Like just because we want to speculate about the violence of the colonial archive doesn't mean we are free from creating our own violences. So one, I want to say that, that I'm, I'm, I am, I, I write the times that I write in a speculative uh, voice, I'm really mindful of that, that I'm, I'm not necessarily, it's not a free pass to write whatever. I also will say, and I did not do creative interlude or creative vignettes, if that were, in all the chapters, which my editor was like, that's not consistent. <laughs> so I said, but I said this, I said, because I don't do it when I can find Asian immigrant and Alaska native authors. But there are two, it's the China Joe figure and then a photographer, Shoki Kayamari, neither of whom we ever get their, they don't leave diary, they don't, and we don't, with China Joe, we don't even know if he's an actual one person, right? But we don't actually have, we have, we have this, we, we, it's, it's sort of, um, we don't have that. We don't have a, a written record with Kayamori, there's he's a, was a photographer, so we have a photographic record. But we don't. But he also died under fairly um, tragic circumstances, so he burned any of his papers, and so we don't have we don't have something for them. And then, so I do write interludes for both of them because I feel like to not to leave them voiceless is is also a violence, and not that I write in their voice, but to leave them sort of silent. I should say that way that to leave us a, a silence, not them silent, but a silence to me is, is a, is a, would be a violence in a book. And in both the cases, I write, I try to write something that is not definitive. So for China Joe, I try to play with a what if, and I use like what if, or may have, I try to use sort of a, 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 a speculation in the writing itself. And I also, when I'm writing about the tale, the tall taleness of it, I try to write in hyperbole to try to offset that. So I'm trying to sort of play with the tale we've been given, right? And I and I use repetition in that way. And with 
with Kayamori, I restart his tale multiple times. So I'm trying to do something that's multivalent. I'm not trying to write, again, I am not only tr- not trying to write a truth to write into, write an absence, if, if we were keeping with that. I am trying to still write a multivalence and, and not even not a fiction to attach to a, a truth, but not just one. So I'm trying not to still write a singular narrative or, or, or definitive story. Um, I am, in, in terms of a tactic and a strategy, really trying to not, because I think discovery is attached to one. And so if we're, again, trying to look at if a method is how do we not write <laughs> in ways that are in some ways perpetuating a settler colonial discourse, we not only don't want to discover, we don't want to fill in with a sort of uh, making ourselves be the discoverer, right, is trying not to write with a singular truth or, or narrative mm. even. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for you know, being so open with your positionality as a writer of speculation uh, and creative writing. Um, yeah, and, you know, in the book, like something that kept, um, that I kept thinking about was your positionality as a reader as well. So we didn't get to talk much about counter narratives, um, but especially in terms of teasing out counter narratives throughout the book, I was thinking about how you positioned yourself as a critical reader, reader of both writing and imagery. And what were some possibilities or challenges that arose due to your position as a reader or due to how you read things? Um, so, I mean, I always think of myself and I have to be thinking about positionality, right? I'm a non-native scholar of color. And I say that both in the both sort of privilege and complexity that is in, in that, right? As a non-native scholar of color who's writing about a, a, of sort of the place that I came from or grew up in the lands I grew up on though they're not mine. Um, so one of that, one of those things is th- that that idea of thinking alongside, right, that I'm trying to in some ways pay attention to both indigenous studies and Asian American studies and think alongside and in some ways facilitate a thinking alongside um, in that way. And I'll say this because I think this is what's really important as I see um, scholars who are now getting trained. I think it's really important for non-Native scholars of color who want to be doing indigenous studies to get trained in indigenous studies. And that, and that can mean um, the training that is available at, at, you know, at that sort of the sort of legible stages of career. So that literally means take indigenous studies classes. Don't just think, you know, what, what settler colonialism is take indigenous studies classes, work with, you know, get trained by indigenous scholars. Um, I had the good fortune of, being at the University of Minnesota that has a very active indigenous studies um, grad program. Um, Didn't at the time, but now officially has a a graduate minor, but had a a workshop, a weekly workshop. Don't be scared to to do that. Go to um, Native American Indigenous Studies Association. Go to NALS, Native American Literature, right? Um, go Go to the conferences. Actually, do that work. Don't just read in the books, but do that work and get that training is like foremost for me. The the thinking alongside is then, of course, not just field formation, but, and I see this too, don't, don't cite the same couple of people. So, you know, try to put people in conversation. And again, that thinking alongside, right? 
And then I think, and, and this is um, one that I think is really important. So there's both sort of the legible, right, training. And then there are the places where you just have to sort of, um, there was a moment, and this is in my book and what we've been talking about, the story about the killing, the shooting and hanging of the three young Clinkett men, I only knew about in one source in the colonial archive from the 1880s. But um, in asking about China Joe, the person, his bakery, and an elder who knew a story about the bakery, it became clear that she also knew the story about the about the killings and that she had passed that story on to either people in her community or in her family. And so um, I was already in book revisions and I told my editor, I have the opportunity to go up to Alaska and just listen to people and make sure I've gotten the story correct, gotten it, that I have the story. I have the opportunity to do that. I have to halt the process. I know this makes me late. I know this is, this is still that one would say that this is still, this, this is, puts me back into research because I'm in book revisions as we talk, but I, I need, and I have to go and it's going to take me time because I have to travel to Alaska in the middle of, you know, I have to coordinate this. I have to go up and then I have to come back. So like, I need months more on my project. Um, and I did, I mean, I got that and I had to just sort of halt, um, that again, I think that and so there's both the legible part that is that is afforded to us professionally in our careers. And then I think there are the parts that are more informal that are in terms of we're really thinking about listening and thinking alongside that that's a commitment to doing that work, even if it's not on the timeline of the legible career um, timeline. And then the last thing I would say is we have to have to have to understand that colonialism is never total and it is never guaranteed. And it is not our future. So like, like that, we we, uh, we can, the same way we may replicate um, violences, we may replicate naturalization, that we don't naturalize. Because we're told that colonialism and capitalism are, you know, are somehow, just because they're the present doesn't mean they're the future. And I think that that's really important um, to not see it simply as a futuristic or imaginary, but we actually understand that as a, as a really present day um, commitment. Yeah, thank you for giving us so much to think with. Um, and for my last question, I want to turn back to um, the beginnings of our conversation to look to the future, perhaps. <laughs> um, so first, you know, you mentioned that one of your goals is not necessarily to discover a new term, but to facilitate conversations. So what kind of um, conversations do you hope that the book facilitates as it has been uh, circulating. And then what are you thinking about thinking alongside or researching next? Yeah. Um, I, I'm really hoping that it continues to facilitate conversations um, around race and indigeneity. I mean, specifically for me, where I'm located within, you know, Asian American studies and indigenous studies. Um, but, you know, but again, not in a professionalization way, but actually to kind of think through what does it mean to think about um, alternative modes of belonging that are not tied to the settler state, right? That are about sort of other modes of, of responsibilities, other sets of responsibilities that are not tied to the settler state. Um, 
And I'm the things that make me excited is that I, I'm getting to have really lovely, like this one, um, scholarly conversations, but then also uh, some some of I don't know if we call them activists, but I've I've had some in Alaska and some that are that are just really lovely to have, both those that deal with Alaska or sort of Asian and indigenous sort of conversations that I think are, are, are really lovely. Um, and in terms of a uh, future work, I have sort of two projects that I'm, I'm sort of working on and, and one's a sort of more legible book project. I'm thinking about settler feminism and what I mean by that in, in, within the American context is, um, and it came about through Alaska that in my, when I was doing work on Alaska. And often it starts with this, that you're like, you're just reading something and you're like, that sounds weird. That sounds odd. This is like my, <laughs> my I don't know, my spidey sense. And, that's, um, and it's a story that's told over and over, but it was told over and over again around in, um, in the centenary for suffrage, for women's suffrage. So it was told in particular when it was the um, centennial around uh uh, the 19th Amendment. And that was that in Alaska, the first act, and it is true, so this is the fact, the first act when Alaska became a territory, so not a, it's not an un- unincorporated territory, but a territory proper was in 1913. In the very first act of the legislature, all white men, but the very first act was to give women the vote in 1913. And that is was celebrated then in 1913 and definitely celebrated now as a proto-feminist, uh, like a proto-feminist maneuver. And I sat there and I thought, but is it, but is it because Alaska native people can't vote and there aren't very many white men in the territory, but there are a whole lot of native. And so I question that and I still do. And I don't, I mean, this is very beginnings of a project, but I just, you know, and and you could Google this. This is not hard to Google. I just was like, where did, where did the vote for women get passed before nationally suffrage was granted in the U S and with, I think with the exception of New Jersey, and then they even t- took away New Jersey, they gave it and took it away. It's all the American West. It's all territories. And it's all, 100% all spaces that are large, large Native populations. I don't think it's about giving white women the vote. I think it's something else. I think it's about, I think it's twofold. I think it, I guess, I guess it is about giving white women the vote, but but in counting more white people in a territory over and against native peoples, it's certainly not about native women, but it's also, I think, again, that promise because it's territorial, that statehood is premised on a settler future. And that's about gender. And that's about white women and families and and white settlement. And I really do think there's something. So I'm I'm thinking through this idea that um, American feminism has not just incidentally tracks with a, a time period in a history of settler colonialism, but they are actually interwoven. So that is sort of the working hypothesis that I'm wanting to sort of look at and how settler colonialism is sort of interwoven with a first wave um, feminism in the U.S. So that's a next book project that's very beginning stages. And then I've been doing some more um, creative writing. I don't know, creative, creative, essayistic, potentially different genre of writing that's trying to think about, um, especially after COVID and the rise in anti-Asian hate and violence, but especially wanting to think through sort of Asian American feminism and violence and gendered violence um, within a settler colonial context, what that actually means, what it means to confront um, 
anti-Asian violence from an Asian American perspective that doesn't, that is also really attuned and mindful of settler colonialism. So I've been doing some more um, personal writing and I have, I'm working on my, I have one essay out and working on a second essay. Wow. These all sound incredibly fascinating and we'll be looking forward to those works. But for now, thank you very much, Juliana, for joining us and for your insights. Absolutely. Thanks for the conversation. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of space-time colonialism, Alaska's Indigenous and Asian Entanglements, published by the University of North Carolina in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.